0: All right, have a seat, please. So, not this last week, but the week before, half of our nation was groaning because Donald Trump was speaking at the convention. And before you throw things at me, this last week, just current week, the other half of the country was groaning. Because Hillary Clinton was speaking at her convention. And so it doesn't matter which side of the country you divide onto or which party you divide into. It doesn't really matter. Somebody's groaning. Don't, don't you groan for the day that we will someday be able to pick the greater of two goods? Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that would be amazing. But until that time comes, the nation groans. And as the nation groans, the people inside the nation groan. We're going to look today at the next passage in Romans chapter 8. We've been going through Paul's letter to the Romans for the last few months now. And uh, today we're going to come to Romans chapter 8, verse 18. And in this passage, and in the one that even follows it that we won't even get to today, there's a whole lot of groaning going on. And Paul describes it for us, and he invites us into it. So if you have your copy of the Bible, I'd love to invite you to Open up to Romans chapter 8. And if you don't have a Bible, if you don't have one with you, we've got some on the chairs near you. You can use one of those. You can have one of those. That's fine. If you've got a smartphone, there's an app on there called YouVersion. It's a Bible app, and we put notes on there for this weekend, and it's got the scriptures already listed for you. If you want to use that, that's fine. Uh, Or you can just listen. That's fine, too. All right, Romans chapter 8, verse 18. in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Fascinates me how much Paul has to say about groaning in his letter. He says the whole creation is groaning from the beginning right up until now. It's groaning. And we see that, we, we understand how that works just in terms of nature's disasters. I mean, we, we have just entered into California fire season. I mean, it's kind of weird, it's a weird deal, right? we got winter, spring, summer, fall, and fire season. It's a season where we go, natural disaster is about to happen, it's coming upon us. In the southeast part of our country, on the Atlantic coast, hurricane season is just starting. And they're going to face about three or four months of hurricane season where big storms are going to blow in on them. And they're going to happen. And everyone knows it. It's a season. It's a season of suffering. It's a season of groaning. such a weird thing. In the Midwest, we're just about to enter into the tornado season. And surely houses will be destroyed this summer, this fall, in tornado season. And creation will groans and there are some seasons of groaning and there are sometimes things that happen that are outside of seasons like earthquakes can happen in any season tsunamis can happen in any season so some some of the groaning in our world happens seasonally some of it happens unseasonably but it happens in our creation groans sometimes it's not about things that happen in the natural world there are things that there are things that make us groan because of the structures that we put together, the systems that we put together, and the fact that human beings are involved in those systems. And so our political world makes the creation groan. Turkey last week suffered a, through a, a failed coup attempt, and hundreds of people were killed in the process of that. In our own country, as the summer has heated up, racial tension has heated up among us again. And terror goes on around the world. I have friends who are traveling in different parts of the world right now and sometimes people have heard that that our friends were going someplace else overseas and, and they'll say, oh, I wish you wouldn't go. And when I hear that, I'm like, well, what would you have them do? Stay? You want them to avoid terrorism there by staying for it here? Because it's everywhere. There's no place safe in this world. You know what that does to us it makes us groan it makes us long for peace it makes us long for unbrokenness it makes us long for wholeness we groan for it right alongside of creation and of course we groan about our own situation Our own heart, our own soul, we groan for ourselves as well because even though we're redeemed in Christ, if you put your faith in Christ, you are redeemed in Christ, you are bought back at a price from Christ, and yet your redemption is not complete. The redemption of your body is not yet complete. Our bodies still carry the wages of sin. We already saw that in Romans chapter 3. The wages of sin is death. And so our bodies carry the wages of sin all the time. Because our bodies, like creation, are decaying. And so we wait. And while we wait, we groan. And what we're waiting for is full redemption. Redemption, I believe, is the essential longing of every human heart. We want it we want to be redeemed we want to be brought back close closely connected to God we want to be whole in our lives we want to be fully redeemed redemption is the essential longing of every human heart it's why we love Cinderella's story it's why we love it it's why we go back to it over and over and over again it's why movie makers keep telling her story in different covers all the time because we love her story because Cinderella's story was all about redemption It's why we love Star Wars. I mean, yeah, really. Who said said that? It's why we love Darth Vader. I mean, we we love him. Why? Because he's a character in search of redemption. And when he finally had a connection with his son, he's discovered that he's his son, and his son's begging him, come with me. And he says, no, it's too late for me. And yet when Darth Vader had an opportunity to seize redemption, He found he would kill for it. Redemption is the essential longing of every human being. If you find in your heart that there's this groaning that goes on, that's a groaning that is a call and a desire for redemption. Speaking of Star Wars, which we were, is that story, that, that whole series of stories, is that story about the redemption of an empire or the redemption of a family? And can you have one without the other? And can you have the redemption of a nation without the redemption of families? Redemption is the essential longing of every human being. Redemption, in one definition of it, means to be set free with outside help. To be set free with outside help. Cinderella can't do it by herself. Darth Vader can't do it by himself. It's to be set free with outside help. Solomon Northup was a violinist great musician, lived in upstate New York with his wife and his two children. Musicians don't always make a ton of money. I mean, if they're Beyonce, okay. But, you know, not not every violinist makes a ton of money. And so when two strangers came along and they invited Solomon Northup to go to Washington, D.C. for a gig to play a few concerts there, he accepted because the money was good. But when they got him to Washington, they got him drunk and then they drugged him and the next morning when he woke up, he woke up in a slavery pen. Solomon Northup was black and he lived 150 years ago. When he woke up, he was in chains and these men who had tricked him took him to a slave auctioneer and they auctioned him off to a plantation owner named William Ford and for the next 12 years, Solomon Northup lived the life of of a slave, 12 years a slave, and he groaned through the universal longing of every human being. He longed for redemption, but he could not gain it himself. The Bible tells a story of a man named Joseph. He was the 11th son of his father, Jacob. He was a rising star in his family, except his brothers were jealous of his rising star. And so one day when they're all out in the field and dad wasn't around, his brothers took him and beat him up and threw him in a pit. And when a caravan of slave traders came through the area, they got their brother out of the pit and sold him to the slave traders who took him to Egypt and they sold him there as a slave. For untold years, he was a slave. In Egypt. And you know he groaned with the universal longing for redemption. But he couldn't acquire it himself. As followers of Jesus, we wait for redemption. We look for it. We know it's in Christ, but we look for it. We wait for it. We're we're no longer slaves. We found out in Romans chapter 6, we're no longer slaves to fear. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're no longer slaves to all this evil. And yet, we still wait for our redemption to come. Our redemption is not complete. It's funny because when Jesus died on the cross... They, na- they stretched out his arms on the cross. They nailed him to that wooden beam and they left him there. And while he was on the cross, one of the last things he said was, it is finished. It's over. It's done. He's saying our redemption is complete. Literally, the word that he used is a word that they would use in the marketplace or in the judicial system to say, paid in full. Paid in full. Your redemption is paid in full. And it's complete, except that in our lives, it doesn't feel complete yet because we still live in bodies that suffer from the wages of sin, death. God hasn't wrapped up the whole program of redemption of our bodies yet, and so we wait, and as we wait, we groan. While we wait, Paul says... uh, Paul describes the waiting that we go through in this process. He he describes it with different words. He says, while we groan, we wait eagerly. There's a passion that goes with that. There's this heartfelt desire that goes with that. We wait eagerly for our redemption. I experienced this. When I came into the office on Wednesday morning, I take my Sabbath day, my off day on Tuesdays, and I came into the office on Wednesday morning, and I knew this was the topic. And I don't know what was going on in my soul that particular morning, but I got into my office, and I have a a chair in my office. It's my prayer chair. It's It's a really comfortable rocking chair, but I almost never sit and rock in it. I just use it to pray at. So I kneeled down on my floor, and I got at my prayer chair, and I just began to pray for us. I, this is my regular pattern when I come into the office in the morning. But on that particular morning on Wednesday, my spirit groaned for us. I groaned for my world. I groaned, God, redeem my world. I want to see you redeem my world, and I don't even mean my whole big world. I'll get to that, but I wanted God to redeem my little world. You know, we call it here at Lakeside, we call that little world our oikos. It's a Greek word for household or network. I groan for my oikos. I I groan for them. I wait for God to bring redemption into the lives of the people that he's put on the front row of my life. Eight to 15 people that he's put on the front row of my life. You have eight to 15 people that God has put on the front row of your life. He wants you to bless them and serve them and love them. And he wants me to do the same. And I got on my knees in my office and I just groaned for them. And then I groaned for our nation. I'm like, God, redeem my nation. I so much want to see my nation live in redemption. And I groaned for that. I'm calling out to God for that. I want him to redeem our politics, I want him to redeem our economy. Mostly, I want him to redeem our families and our individuals. And then I groan for our world. You groan for our world. You groan for our world, maybe not even calling it that name. But you look at the state of affairs in our world and you go, this is nuts. How do we get here and where are we heading? And who will redeem this mess? that we're in, and I, on my knees in my office, groan for that. Paul says, we wait eagerly for our redemption. And in one form or another, in one description or another of that, you groan for that. We all do. He says, we groan eagerly. He says also, at the end of this paragraph, he says, and we wait for it patiently. That's a head-scratcher to me. I was trying to think of all the people that I've known in my life, and I've literally known thousands of people in my life, and I was trying to think of the one person I could remember who actually waited for anything patiently. I, I don't remember anyone. Paul, But it's in the Bible. It's like he, he says, we wait for it patiently. I'm like, oh, that doesn't make sense to me. I don't, how does that work? He goes, no, we, we wait for it patiently. I think what he means is we engage with it over a long period of time. He says creation groans as in the pains of childbirth. There's this this process of childbirth. It's really a nine-month process, the way we understand how gestation works and all those things. And it's interesting for a first-time couple who are having their first baby, you, you, get about, you get about nine months of preparation, but you're only aware of it for about seven and a half months or maybe seven months by the time you find out that you're actually going to have a child. But that's seven months of waiting and seven months of patiently waiting. And you go, no, oh, no, I can't wait for it any longer. I'm not very patient. Yeah, but in the process, you engage with it. And so a young couple, first-time couple, they'll, they'll spend those months getting the nursery ready. So it's all beautiful for the new baby. Or they'll make practice runs to the hospital because the last thing a dad wants to do with, his, with, the, with the mother of their first child is to make a wrong turn to the hospital in the heat of the moment. So you practice to the hospital. You know, and you go to birthing classes. And what is that? That's waiting patiently. That's engaging in the process as the process rolls out. And if you have enough time, you maybe even take, if you're an overachiever, you take parenting classes you know, while you're waiting patiently. And what are you waiting for? You're, you're waiting for one of these. Oh, it's just, some of you were asking. like, So, for both of you that were asking, that's my grandson. And, uh, want to see another one? Okay. There it is. Oh, wait. <laughs> this is what my daughter's doing for her son. She's letting him listen to Big Poppy's podcasts. <laughs> Okay, never mind, but that's what we're waiting for. <laughs> we wait. You take that off. There thank you. <laughs> we wait for it patiently. That doesn't mean that we always feel patient in our heart. It means we engage in the process. We wait for it patiently. Creation groans as in the pains of childbirth up to the present time, Paul says. And then he says this, and not only that, but we also, in our own spirit, we groan as we wait for our adoption as children of God, for the redemption of our bodies. We groan for it. But not like expectant parents groan. We groan for it like a child waits for adoption. Now, think about that. Little babies that are waiting for adoption, they don't know they're waiting for adoption. And little babies don't take very long to get adopted. It's not a very long waiting process for the child, but let that child pass the age of cute adoption time, and now that child's four years old, or six years old, or nine years old, and they haven't yet been adopted, and now they wait for it. And year after year, they wait for it, and they painfully wait for it. He says that's what it's like when you have redemption from Christ but it's not yet completed in your life. You wait for it. And it's not a seven-month journey or a nine-month journey. It's a long, long journey. In fact, it's a lifetime journey, and we groan in the midst of it. We wait patiently, engaging in the process. And then he says we we wait expectantly. We wait with hope. We have expectation. There's this There's this." concept of hope in the scriptures that's not like hope that we think about usually in our world we're like oh i wish it would happen it would be so nice i hope so no it's an expectation it's based on faith hope from a biblical perspective is based on faith it's based on a promise and so he says we wait expectantly for our redemption to come because God promised. In verse 18, Paul said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. I always marvel that that passage doesn't say uh, we're waiting, we're expecting the glory that will be revealed to us. It's not to us, it's in us. And we wait for it. And we wait for it with hope because we have a promise. Solomon Northup had no promise that he would ever find freedom again. Twelve years a slave, but maybe for the rest of his life, no promise of redemption. Joseph, son of David, when he was in prison in Egypt, he had no promise that he would ever be redeemed from that prison. He knew who his God was. He was confident in his God. He was confident that God was doing something, but he had no promise that he would be ever set free from that prison in slavery. But when you and I wait for our expectation, we wait with a promise. We wait with hope. We wait with expectation because God said, look, there is glory coming for your life uh, which makes the sufferings of your present life and the sufferings of your present world makes them incomparable, not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. You wait with hope. Jesus made a promise of redemption and a redeemed life is a story of hope. Every redeemed life is a story of hope. And if you've been redeemed by Christ, you are a carrier of hope. Paul writes his letter to help us live like that. I want to introduce you a friend of mine who is a carrier of hope. She is a follower of Jesus. She has been redeemed by Christ. She lives with the same groanings that we live with, and yet she's learned to be a carrier of hope. So I want you to meet her, uh, Judy. Why don't you come up? This is Judy Daniels. Why don't you guys welcome her up, please? So, Judy, uh, I know you've, been, you've got a family, you've, got, um, you've been at Lakeside here for several years, you've been a teacher, been involved in education, been an administrator, so that's a little bit of background story. But tell us what your life was like before you found Jesus.
1: Before I found Jesus, I think the best way to describe my life is to say that I was a flaming hippie. I'd what, is, gotten, what does
0: flaming mean?
1: That means I was completely sold out to a lifestyle. Um, I'd gotten married when I was right out of high school at 18, and by the time I was 21, I was divorced and a single parent, and I decided to follow the advice of Timothy Leary, and I tuned in, turned on, and dropped out and moved up to the mountains where I had a variety of jobs. The important part about this, though, is that I was so... Into my own self centered behaviors, that I was not responsible in taking care of people I was supposed to be responsible for and taking care of. And I got lost in that.
0: So, at some point in that journey, Jesus found you. Yes. Describe how he found you.
1: Um, One morning while I was working out of town, I woke up in the morning in this apartment. Um, On the floor, I had gotten sick and passed out the night before. And I woke up in this strange place and realized that my life was absolutely and completely empty. There was nothing in it that had significance or purpose. And it was such an unbearable feeling that I decided I couldn't live with it. I couldn't live with it. I walked outside the door, and I was walking down the street, and I saw a church that was of the denomination that I'd gone to when I was a little kid. And I walked into that church, and the next thing I knew, I was literally screaming at a statue of Jesus. All of this venom that was in me was coming out, and I was frightened. I, was, it, it, it was, I didn't know how to react to it. I was so scared that when I got home a few days later, I made an appointment with a mental health counselor and went in to talk to him. And the important thing about that visit is that while I was there, I had an experience that helped me to know that it was possible that there might still be value in my life. I had failed so utterly at taking care of people I was responsible for that I thought I was unlovable and unable to love anybody else.
0: Hmm. But in that journey, you found out that Jesus actually loved you.
1: Exactly. And it was a process, but over the next year, I was introduced to people who showed me who Christ was, uh, one of whom is my husband now of 33 years, um, as of this week, actually. And... That's an interesting story because I've always considered myself an academician, even when I was really in my stupid years. And I decided that what I was going to do was read the Bible and argue him out of his silly faith. But what ended up happening is that I was the one whose mind was changed.
0: Yeah, it's awesome. So you put your faith in Christ. And one of the things that I've loved about you, Judy, is that you have this joy in the, in the fact of your redemption.
1: That's absolutely true. The joy stems from knowing that you're loved. But I think it's really important to give you the other piece of this story, which Brad hasn't mentioned, and that is that I found out a couple of years ago that I have stage four cancer. And that brings with it a whole series of emotions that one has to work through. Um, there's sorrow and sadness and grief and anger that... Tension that exists between suffering and hope. Um, but what I discovered is that joy is a choice. And it's always there. Every day, joy is a choice that I can make. And I do. And that's how I live my life joyfully. Yeah.
0: So, and you do. I, I can vouch for that in our, our connections together. Uh, you are very joy filled. But then your spirit must groan also. Uh, with the, you know, it, the cancer or just in life things. What is that like for you?
1: Well, in life things, I'm like everybody else in the room. It's, it's a challenging world to live in. In terms of my cancer, I think <clears throat> there's an emotional aspect to it that's very difficult. My sense of loss is so great. I have three-and-nine-tenths wonderful grandkids that range in age from 18 to one that's going to be born in two weeks. And they're my heart. I have wonderful kids and in-law kids, and I have an amazing husband who thinks I'm precious. And sometimes when I think about the fact that likely somebody else is going to be the one who grows old with him, as much as I want that for him, and I do, I get filled with this overwhelming sadness that it's not going to be me. And the thing I think that's important here is the fact that you walk through that uh, and you groan Mm -hmm. because we're not there yet. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, we're not there yet. And yet we live with hope, right? We, We wait expectantly for what God is bringing. How do you practice hope in your redemption?
1: I love that you term that practicing hope because I think that's what you do. We practice hope. Hope is available as well. And I learned this recently in a very visceral way um, at a retreat that I was at. The difference between um, being joyful and abiding in or practicing hope. It's all a question of what we're Placing our hope in. And the best way I can explain it is to use the vision statement of a young woman I've been mentoring since she was in high school 25 years ago, who's now a professional choreographer, and she's just started a dance company in Colorado. And her mission statement for her company is this to be standing in the ashes of the barn burned down, pointing to the moon. One foot in suffering and the other in hope. And that's my hope. That's where I want to live for however many days are granted to me. To have one foot in suffering in this world that we live in, because we do, and we do suffer. But to have the other foot in hope, pointing to the moon, metaphorically Christ, because that's the only true source of hope, and it never fails.
0: Amen. Thank you, Judy. God bless you. Every redeemed life is a story of hope. Every one. And you might think, I'm not that articulate. I I could never express my hope like that. Every redeemed life is a story of hope. And we groan, and we wait, and we carry hope. That's the calling that God invites us into as we live for him. Jesus, I pray for us in this journey. I pray for everyone in this room, Lord. I don't know every single story. You are intimate with every story that's here. But Lord, for every one of us, surely there is pain, there's some suffering, there's groaning that goes on from deep within us toward you. And I pray for those who have chosen to follow Jesus that they would understand their redemption is getting closer that their redemption is drawing nearer and that they, that we would be carriers of hope. Lord, there are some in the room who have not yet crossed the line of faith and said, Jesus, I need to trust you. And I pray for them that they would find that step today, that they would take that step today, trust you. Lord, we love you. We are grateful for all that you're doing in us, that all, for all that you want to do through us. We're thankful for all these things. Make us carriers of hope. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.